I want to start a, a short run of sermons um, around uh, the sort of the general theme, the, the basic theme of the cross-shaped life. Um, it, it, it's kind of part of the, the, the track that we've been trying to follow um, since the beginning of the year, actually, where we spent some time um, initially in Psalms, but then we looked at Proverbs and tried to work out a little bit how you approached a book of wisdom. And it was that theme of wisdom. What does it mean to grow in wisdom? And as you grow older, to become wiser. Um, and the art of, the, the, the definition of wisdom is the art of living really faithfully before God. Um, so as a Christian, as you grow older, um, the idea for all of us as we mature is that essentially we handle life better. <laughs> Almost as simple as that. Um, and, um, and of course, some days you think, yep, I think I'm getting it. And other days you go, no, I don't think that's happening at all. But it is that art of wisdom is I can, I can handle what's happening in and around me almost with a, a greater panache. <laughs> it's not just I'm, I'm gritting my teeth and getting through, but I'm actually doing this quite skillfully I've, and, and artfully. And at least that's what I'm kind of hoping will happen to me when I get old. But it's kind of that idea of living with, and I love that word, that, that idea of I, I want to live with panache. I don't know if that makes any sense to you whatsoever. But what I mean by that is not only can I sort of manage life, but actually I'll do it really well, hopefully with a smile, hopefully with a lightness and a carefreeness of spirit, hopefully in a way that is good news for other people, hopefully in a way that enables others to live really well. And I think all of that is part of what it means to live uh, a wise life, a, a life of wisdom. Of course, we've just gone through Easter and um, what Paul will say, and we, when we preached about the cross before Easter, we, we talked about how the, the irony of Christianity is that in defeat, the wisdom of God was uh, demonstrated. In the, de the seeming defeat of the cross actually was the greatest power that overturned everything. And what I want to do in this period post-Easter is think about this idea of what does it mean to live a cross-shaped life. A life that, in a sense, doesn't just look back to the cross and go, well, that's where salvation was born, but actually a way that shapes us, the cross-shaped life. And if you kind of wanted to know what that meant, I guess we could, I mean, there's any number of ways you could do it, isn't there? But two ways, perhaps. You'd think about the cross as the ultimate sacrifice. What does a cross-shaped life look like? It looks like a life of sacrifice, but not a grit teeth dour. You know those people and they've made a sacrifice and boy do they want you to know it. You kind of don't want their sacrifice. Please don't do anything for me. It's not that. It's a joyful sacrifice. It's one where almost you would never guess. But just a life that says, I live for the sake of others. And then the joy of the resurrection. And I think part of it is that sense of what does a sacrificial life look like, but what does joyful, hopeful life look like? And what I want to do is explore that through um, some really sort of down-to-earth stuff that we're engaged with in life. So over the next few weeks, to look at family life, to look at 
parenting and being uh, a son or a daughter. I want to look at prejudice. I want to look at about how do you argue with other Christians really well? <laughs> All right. So I think many of you ought to come to that. Um, I'm, I'm going to put my head above the parapet and, 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 and we'll, we'll look on one of those days at how, what's wisdom in an age of sexual fluidity where everybody is, well, it's uncertain, isn't it? And everything's changing and, and we'll look at that. And then um, we'll come to the end of this little series of half a dozen or so and look at actually what, how do you grow old wisely and how do you prepare to die with wisdom? All right? So we'll look at aging and death. I'm not looking at you, Janet. Um, but it's on the, it'll be the 26th of May. Don't miss it. Um, I'm not. I'm not. No, 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 it's not a prophecy. Of, no, it's... No. <laughs> You see, that's the problem, isn't it? That's the problem. You see, the problem is two things. The only certain thing you, about, for, for most of us, you know, barring Jesus coming again, the only certain thing is you're going to be older tomorrow than you were today. And unless Jesus sort of preempts it, you're going to die. See it? Hallelujah. And... And, and kind of most of us want to go, we'd prefer that not to be tomorrow unless tomorrow's looking like a really bad day. But we prefer it not to be tomorrow. But essentially, how do you live with joy in the light of those two things? Because, because our culture doesn't want you to address those two questions. Our culture wants you to deny the fact you're getting older or at least mask it, and not talk about death. And I'm not being critical, but so when I said, we're going to talk about aging and, and, and dying, and some of you went, oh, and so it's like, laugh, it's because, well, we don't talk about that sort of stuff, do we? But actually, we ought to, because one day, it'll happen to us. So that's what I'm going to be doing over the next few weeks anyway. But today, I want to talk about the implications of a cross-shaped church. Essentially, not because it's the easiest thing, though in some ways it's less thorny than some of those issues, but essentially because I think at heart is if we want to grow as disciples, if we want to grow in this life of wisdom, you can't do it on your own. And that's why we have church. You can't do it on your own, though we would wish to. We would wish to. And let's be honest, sometimes church would be easier if everybody else was like me. Or in your case, you. <laughs> you see, what happens is we, we collect together a group of people who've made their way into this relationship of belonging to Salford Elim Church, and whatever that may mean for you, through a whole variety of ways. Some of you came decades ago and stayed, and it's kind of interesting. And those of you that are newer to church, you need to find out those people who've been here decades and ask them why they stayed. No, 
But do you know what I mean? There's, like a, there's, a, there's a good question to be asked there. Why did you stay? Why did you stay on the, on the hard days? Why did you stay when it would have been easier to say, oh, do you know what? It's really cheesing me off. I know that nobody ever thinks that about church. But there's days when it would be easier to leave than it is to stay. So for those people who've been here for decades, and some of you, and it's not just, with respect, it's not just the older people, but there are sort of like middle-aged people here who've been here 30 years. You know, people who are not yet as young as 50. And, um, and it's good to ask them, why did you stay? It takes a church to raise a Christian. It takes a church to raise a disciple. It takes a church to help us to know how to deal with life wisely. It takes a church to help us to know how, what on earth do you do with kids. It takes a church to help us to go, what does it look like at this stage of life? It takes a church to age well. So it's not a church so we go through the services, but it's actually the community of the church. It's the relationships that are enabling. And in a sense, the bottom line is we need one another. I'm going to read together, and if you have a Bible or you can get hold of one, I'm going to read from Romans 12. And um, I'm reading from the New International Version, and sometimes that means that... um, some certain words may be different if you're reading in a different version, but hopefully overall, uh, it means you can follow relatively easily. Just to remind you where I'm jumping in, because this is a letter, and you're kind of like jumping in three quarters of the way through the letter. Paul, who wasn't known, um, he'd never been to Rome at this point, Um, but he knew people in Rome, but he hadn't been there. But what he'd done was he'd laid out, as it were, his uh, theology of the gospel. Essentially, he was just answering the question in chapters 1 to 11, what difference does Jesus make? And he begins with creation, and he goes through to what, how's all this going to pan out? And then in chapter 12, there's a shift. And in chapter 12, what Paul starts to do is go, so what difference is this going to make to the way we live? In other words, it's kind of, you know, like Ian leads us in some of those great songs this morning, written by other people, written about the cross, written about hope, written about faith. And um, then someone has to go, yeah, but what difference does it make? tomorrow. And in a sense, that's what chapter 12 does. It begins to say, well, actually, what difference does it make? And so this is how Paul makes the shift. Therefore, in the light of all of the gospel, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to to each of you. 
For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members don't all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what's evil, cling to what's good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't think you're superior. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. And if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge, I'll repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Before we just skate over that, that passage, really, I just want to give you an indication of the sort of church or the churches in Rome that Paul would have been writing to. There was a book written a, a few years ago by this guy called Peter Oakes, who teaches at Manchester University, a Christian who teaches in the theology department, uh, calling, uh, reading, uh, called Reading Romans in Pompeii. I've talked to several people about this because it's a book that I found really, really, really helpful. Because what he's doing in the book we're saying, if you want to imagine the impact of a letter like Romans, what you've got to be able to do is at least begin to imagine the sort of people it was written to. And if you've been to Pompeii in, Rome, uh, in Italy, which is about 70 miles uh, north, sorry, south, that's what I was going to say, um, <laughs> 70 miles <laughs> south of Rome, you can walk around, as some of you clearly have done, and um, I went north and there was nothing there. Um, there was <laughs> you, you can walk around, you can go into the houses, you can see, you can see the scale of things. And what uh, Peter Oakes did was uh, extrapolating from Pompeii, which was uh, in place exactly the same time what Rome was, uh, Romans was being written. He says, so what do we know from Pompeii and what do we know from existing digs in Rome? And through a whole set of ways that I'm not going to go into now because it's kind of more lecture thing than it is preaching thing. It, but it's well, if, you get, if you're into that sort of thing, it's well worth reading. And uh, I could lend you it if I were kind. Um, but he suggests, and he would be in line with many others who would suggest, that these early Christian communities in Rome were probably made of about 30 people each because of where they were meeting. But more than that, they begin to give some suggested ways of thinking about, well, what sort of people were these 30? Well, they would meet in a craft, 
a worker's tenement or a flat, a workshop. In other words, in Rome, they built up because Rome was uh, tight for space. So they built up, they built tenements and they would be meeting in a tenement or a flat um, a, a room. Think about, and again, it makes sense of other things then, doesn't it? When you read about, do you remember the story about Eutychus who fell asleep during a sermon? This is, this is biblical for those of you that still do this sort of stuff, uh, sleeping through sermons. Um, <laughs> but but he, he sat at an open window and fell out. Okay, and then the preacher had to come and pray for him that he'd be brought back to life, and then the preacher carried on preaching. Um, but it makes sense then, doesn't it, that they were in these tenements, upper floors. It would be a craft worker. And his wife would be there, there would be children, a couple of male slaves, a female domestic slave, and probably de- a dependent relative. Probably an older, often an older woman, because they had no other way of living without dependent. There would have been, he suggests, other householders with some, though not all of the above. Um, There would have been a couple of members, perhaps, of extended family. And he's taking it from Romans 16. So he's trying to reconstruct the sort of uh, type of church it might be. There would be slaves who were not part of the household. So in other words, they would have time off. And I'll talk about slavery in a moment, but they they would be uh, not part of the household. Um... There, there could be a couple of free or freed dependents of people. So people who've either bought their freedom or were born into freedom. A couple of homeless people and then a few migrant workers. In other words, it's just a mixed bag. Now, just presenting it like this, those of you that, that want to think about this would have a million questions and rightly so. Uh, how can you be so sure? How do you know and everything else? And to be honest, what you've got to do is follow, follow the reading. It's enough for me to say, can you get a flavor of the type of community it was? Because if you can get that in your mind, it enables you to hear what Paul writes with a little bit more of a sense of, oh, well, that's interesting. In other words, these were not all freed people. They were not all slaves. It was a mixture of both. And um, the, the whole slavery question, if you think about it, if you read the little letter of Philemon, you have a classic example of someone who is a slave owner whose slave becomes a Christian and comes back into the household. Paul is asking for that to happen. And he's saying, but can you see him differently now? He'll still be a slave, but can you see him differently? Can you see him as a brother? So in other words, what was going on in those times were people were kind of subverting the social status. Sometimes people say, well, why didn't Paul just say, get rid of slaves? Slavery is a bad thing. And there's no doubt about it that slavery is not what God would want. God never designed uh, a creation where one person would own another person. Never there. But the, I don't know, I don't know if this helps, but certainly for me it helps this. Some of you drove to church this morning. And you drove in petrol cars, and one or two of you may even have driven in a diesel car. You know that your petrol car and your diesel car is causing umpteen problems uh, for our society. Some of you came out of your car with plastic bags. 
and you know that plastic bags are really bad. Why did you do that? I mean, actually, just why did you do it? No, why did you do it? Because it's convenient. Pardon? Why do you do it? Why do you, why do you drive? Because we're used to doing it. Because actually, the, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'll do that later. Um, not trying to make you feel bad. Um, the truth is, at the moment, it's really difficult to work out another way. Now, in 10 years' time, when we've all got electric cars, it'll be different. But right now, it's more difficult. But our grandchildren will ask us, why did you drive a petrol car? And you go, well, it was, it was more complicated than that at the time. What did you do about the plastic? Well, we tried to cut down, but it was more complicated. And in a sense, when, if you'd have asked Paul, why did you just get rid of slaves? He would have gone, actually, the economy of Rome, the economy of the Roman Empire depends on this. It's more complicated than you might imagine. So what do you do? Well, you subvert it. What does the kingdom of God look like in a context that is not ideal? Well, you subvert it. And it begins with this. It begins with his first two verses. And this is the, the paraphrase from the message version of the Bible. And I said before about the message version, I really like it sometimes because it tells you, it gives you an insight into a way of reading that you sort of think, wow, that's not there. In fact, sometimes you read it and you think, I didn't know that was in the Bible. And then you read the NIV and you go, it wasn't, but it should have been. It's really good. Um, take your everyday life, um, Eugene Peterson writes, take your everyday life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. A paraphrase of that verse that says, offer your life as a living sacrifice. If you do that, if you say, Lord, here I am, I want to be yours, what that calls you to is a life that is countercultural. A life of seeing the world differently. I'm not saying it because I was the one praying it this morning, but you know, when we prayed for the kids and their exam results, and their exams rather, that thing where we remind ourselves before God we are not worth what we achieve in some circles, is deeply countercultural. It's not that we don't care that our children do well or they fulfill their potential. It's not that. It's actually that we will not grade our children and their value on how they do in their results. For life is better than that. How do you subvert a meritocracy that is, your school is this good if you do this, your children are this good if you do that, and... What that means for some of us who are parents is when people say, how did your children go? Never be ashamed if they didn't do as well as the person you're speaking to. You live counterculturally. So what did this radical community look like in Rome? Well, verses 3 to 8 is about the gifts of the Spirit. And what Paul is doing, he begins it by saying... I, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. 
which in a sense is, is not what we would want to say to each other because I think that most people in our context don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Sometimes it's actually the opposite. We don't think that we've got anything to offer. But in Paul, when Paul's writing to Rome and he's writing to people who are in a very clear hierarchical status-anxious community, you see, if you were the craft worker and you were free, and you owned the tenement, and your family were leading the church, and you, you've got your slaves, and your slaves may go, I don't want to come, and you go, you'll come. <laughs> it's a bit like having teenagers. Um, you'll come. When Paul says, be careful, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, what he's doing is subverting that. And what he's going to go on and do is say, because... You've all got different gifts. Now use them as the Spirit decides. So your migrant worker may be the one who prophesies into the community. Your slave might be the one who actually can teach the community. Now, for us, that's like that sounds lovely. But can you imagine how disconcerting that would be if you were the owner of the slave and the slave went to the market the next day and they said, what did you do yesterday? Oh, we went to church. We had church. And what happens at your place? Well, my servant, uh, my, my master, sorry, my master serves as the meal that we have together. Can you imagine going down the slave as a slave down the market and, and saying, my master serves us the meal. Everybody else would go, well, your master must be either stupid or weak or you must be manipulative. Or this is a really weird cult you've joined. So why would a master hold the door for a slave to go through? Because here, we're subverting the whole of the status hierarchy of Rome. How do, how do you get to decide who does what? Well, God is, um, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed. It's not someone's choice about who does what, Actually, God's distributing gifts here. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. Subvert the status anxiety. In verse 9 to 11, love must be sincere. Hate what's evil. Cling to what's good. Be devoted to one another in love. Create a new community. That idea of honor one another, be devoted to one another in love. The, the languages of Philadelphia is the actual word. But that idea of a new loyalty. And again, you go back to who, who he's talking to. Migrant workers, slaves, masters, people who don't really belong anywhere else. These are the people we will choose to love. This is what the community will begin to look like. In verse 11 and 12, he says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And Paul seems to be indicating in those two verses really simply that life is not always going to be easy to continue to follow Jesus in. 
goes back to that thing I said at the beginning. Go and ask the people who've been here for 40 years, 50 years, why did you keep going? Because there's days when, in church context, they've kept their spiritual fervor, they've been joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. We kept going. And then finally, put it into practice. Verse 13 and 14. Well, verse 13, really. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Two things that Paul says to the church. Firstly, share with the Lord's people who are in need. If you were a slave, um, you could get out of slavery by saving money up and then buying your freedom. If you were part of a church community and someone said, actually, we've got someone in need here, would you give? If you're a slave and you've got little money and you give your money to the people who really need it, you are giving away your own freedom. Does that make sense? Practicing hospitality. Sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds like, well, yeah, we've got a spare room and an extra towel. But not in Rome. Because if you practiced hospitality in Rome, two things were true. Most of you would not have a spare room. Secondly, most of you would not have enough food even to feed your own family. So if you're going to take someone in and they're going to stay with you, where are you going to sleep? Who's going to sleep on the floor? Because someone's got to sleep on the floor. It'll be you or it'll be them. What does it mean to practice hospitality? If you're going to feed someone in a context where there's subsistence levels, who's going to eat less or who's not going to eat at all? Now, some of us have experienced this as on the receiving end. Um, there was a time 20 years ago when uh, we were going to R uh, Romania quite a lot. And um, uh, Frank was one of them and others were part of that sort of adventure at the time. And we were going and we were supporting charities over there and we were trying to make a difference in a little way. But one of the most awkward things was um, when you turned up, um, you were fed and you were fed meat. And uh, the really, that wasn't the awkward bit. The awkward bit was uh, the guys would sit down with you and the women would stand and watch you. And because we are godly men, I think is the word I'm looking for. Um, we'd say to them, come and join us. No, 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 no. This is for you. And the two things we knew were happening behind the scenes is, firstly, they were not eating, and secondly, we were eating what they had probably for a month. That made it feel a little awkward. You certainly didn't complain. I don't, I don't like this. <laughs> you can't complain. But it did make you feel, I'm on the receiving end of radical hospitality here. You see, I, let's be honest, I've never practiced hospitality like that. You know, where I've eaten and Maggie's not had to eat for a month. <laughs> I've never had to practice hospitality like that. Because it's, well, it's not sensible, is it? So when Paul writes to Rome and say, share with the Lord's people who are in need, and practice hospitality. Please understand this. This wasn't like, I'll go to Aldi and get another pack of biscuits. 
This is, this is the community. Finally, so how do you demonstrate a different story? Well, you learn together. We learn together humility, mutual belonging, mutual gifting, sincere love, mutual honor, maintain the fervor, mutual sharing, and radical sharing. And we do it for Rome's front line because, and I'm not going to go into this, but just to highlight it, because what he's going to do at verse 14, he's going to, he's going to flip and no longer talk about the church community. He's going to talk about how do you deal with people who are not part of the church community. You're going to give unreasonable blessing to people who are persecuting you. You're going to identify with people who socially are not of your class. You're going to recognize the differences, and as far as possible, you're going to live with that. You're going to cross boundaries, and you're going to be gracious. You're going to live peacefully. You're going to be willing to lose. If people want to take you to the cleaners, you're not going to go and get revenge. You're going to practice radical goodness. You see, this idea of becoming a counter-cultural community shaped by the cross is not that you might belong to a really good church is that you might be shaped to be radically different in the whole of your life. So what does it mean to be these people who want to grow in wisdom? Just a few things. Firstly, and, and, and this can sound emotive, but I don't mean it to sound emotive. I just I think it's true. I need you if I'm going to grow into the person that God wants me to be. And you need me if that's going to happen for you. And we need Janet. Because <laughs> we've not got much time with Janet. <laughs> we need Janet. All right? Yeah, you and I need a word. Yeah, okay. <laughs> And we need Janet, and we need Mark, and we need Nev, and we need Emmanuel. And everything that we've grown up with, everything that we've grown up with, particularly for those of you who have gone through education and you've done well, and is, I'll be fine, I'll manage on my own. And this idea of radical interdependence doesn't sit easily with us. And it's, it's kind of the, the heart of what it means to be a church is to say, I can't do this on my own, I need you. And I, I, if I'm really honest, I can just push it one stage further. I need the people who sometimes irritate me. Now, they're not here this morning because <laughs> you're fine. <laughs> But do you know what I mean by that? You need the spiky people. You need the awkward people. You need the people who don't fit elsewhere. You need the people who are not easy. You need the people who aren't easily ever going to be your best friend. You may or may not find your best friend in, in our church. That's not really what we're about. We're not a friendship circle. What we are is a disciple-making community. If you do, then praise God for that. But it's not primarily what it's about. 
primarily it's about actually this is a community where we seek and we will continue to seek to try and enable you to grow. I need you and you need me and we need one another. If we're going to grow together, I don't know if there's... We can't grow together just by turning up at 10.30 on a Sunday morning. That's the bottom line. You don't grow together like this, where sort of 90 people look at one person. Now, I think this is okay as part of what we're about. But if this is the only thing we're about, that's not going to be enough. On the one hand, I can't say I need you and you need one another if actually all it's going to be about is turning up, rocking up, sitting in a chair, looking at one person, and they're going home again. It is about that relational stuff. It's about growing together. It's about eating together. It is about small talk. And, you know, I meet loads of people who go, I don't like small talk. Well, how on earth will you ever get to big talk? <laughs> do you know what I mean? If I don't know you and you don't do small talk with me, then, you know, don't come and your first question to me be, what's your deepest problem? Because they ain't going to tell you because I don't, don't know you. Talk to me about Spurs, my concerns about Spurs for a while. And I could talk a long time about my concerns. You can't leapfrog relational building. That's what I'm trying to say. You can't leapfrog. You can't even say it. You, you can't leapfrog. Anyway, you know what I mean. You can't. And for some of you that are introverts, that's going to take energy. Because you're going to have to talk to an extrovert about Spurs who won't shut up. And you're not interested in Spurs. That's the problem. But you'll listen if you're interested in me. That's why we do small talk. Not because we're interested. You know, it's that, and we all feel it, that moment where you go, so tell me about, and then they do. <laughs> and you kind of wish, okay, enough, enough, and, and they don't stop. And you've got, you see, it's one thing to say, really want to love one another, but if I can't listen to you, don't talk to me about love. And for those of you that are introvert, it'll take the most out of you. And that'll be the price you pay. Because the price that some of you will pay is to cross the room, to meet and say, how's it all going? What's the best thing about your week? What's been, what's been brilliant? What's been tough? How was Easter? And for some of you, to make that move is what it means to grow together. Because if you do the small talk and you build a relationship on the days when, to be honest, you probably feel like you don't need anybody, what you're doing, and this might sound too hard-nosed for you, but what you're doing is you're putting stuff in the bank so on the days when you do need someone else, you've got the relationships that matter. 
And I think the, th- the, the last thing I'd want to say is when I read Romans 12, and I read it in the context of the sort of people that Paul was writing to, I recognize in the Western church, we are not on the whole, generally, we are not that sort of community. And so it's not hard to imagine then that if, and I'm not going to sensationalize it, but if the days come when we also face, at the very least, concern because of religious fanaticism, most churches won't survive. Because we've not built community that's agile enough or strong enough. So in a sense, this is, I don't know how how it sounds, but in one sense for me, this, I think there's just two things in my own mind, and I don't know know about you, maybe I'll ask, but in my mind it's just two things. Firstly, it, it offers me a picture of a scriptural understanding of what Paul is doing and saying, because of the cross, this is the sort of community that flows out of the cross. Live up to that. And that challenges me because the idea of being um, independent and being able to work things out and be able to manage on my own, and in a sense, being in a friendly place but one that I don't need to feel dependent upon is quite attractive. But I suspect that Paul's idea of church is not, have you got a friendly church? But it's actually, have you got a community where your roots go deep enough with one another that enable you to grow in wisdom? Does all that make sense? So how, how do we respond now? <laughs> what, what, what happens now? What do we do now? What's the, what is the response? I was thinking that um, you said for people to... You said at the... Yes, it's on. It's on, it's on. At the beginning you said that... Um, it would be a good idea for the newcomers to ask people who've been in church for a long time why, they, why they've stayed. I was just um, um, reflecting on the fact that in our church we have a significant number of people who've been damaged from other churches who have come to us and, I'm assuming, found a place of safety or refuge and I think it would be interesting to ask them what it is that has helped them to yeah. put roots down and feel safe. It, it, yeah. yeah. It's kind of like everybody, we've all got our stories, haven't we? And, and, but you're right, you're right. Well, so what do you think? What, what's, I, I don't want to extend this because we've not got ages, but what are you thinking? You. I've, I've always, well, for a long time, 
having been brought up in a Christian home, known that verse about a living sacrifice. Mm. I've never understood what it's meant until this morning. Okay, yeah. And the actual responsibility that that lays on me, which is a good thing, but a responsibility nonetheless. And actually, that's one of the reasons why we we came here and stayed. (laughs) Well, thank you. I think it is interesting, isn't it? It's because it's easy to use that language of, I want to be a living sacrifice and sing the songs. But actually, I want to be a living sacrifice, but I don't want to sleep on the floor. (laughs) I want to be a living sacrifice, but I don't want to wash up. I want to live in sacrifice, but I don't want to give away my savings. And I think Paul's much more earthed than we would wish him to be at times. Anyway, uh, thank you, Mark. Anybody else? What, what's? Yeah, Lana. I think for me, there's a realization that um, I can't do that. You know, I I can in Christ, and that's why I need to call on Him and on mm. His name, and as a church as a whole. We need to seek him as to how that works out. How do we do the things that are necessary? How do we change our cultural preferences for a church that you just turn up for and get something, Mm. um, but don't actually serve one another in the week or Mm. show that kind of sacrifice on Mm. an ongoing basis? So I think for me, it just sends me straight back to God (laughs) because, you know, none of us can do it on our own. Yeah, that's a good response. Somebody down here? Are you? <laughs> um, I was thinking about the fact that I, I, you, you said this, but doing doing this stuff um, doesn't make any sense unless you're doing it standing in a knowledge of God. Because I can only sacrifice what I have because I know that I have a God who's abundant, Mm. because Mm. I know that I have a God who's going to meet all my needs. You know, Jesus says about, don't don't worry about what you're going to eat, don't worry about what you're going to wear, don't worry where the next meal's coming from, because these things are things that I will provide. Your heavenly Father knows your needs. And it's easy to sort of look at this and think about the cost and stand in the sort of, the pre-position, the sort of position before having done it and mm. think, mm. what will I do without that? Without going back to the point of thinking, but God knows. And, you know, that, that just, I find, it just awes me mm. every time. But also that I don't get to judge who I give it to. I don't get to decide whether that person deserves it or not. I just have to give it anyway. Mm. And that, that whole thing of abundance and, and um, generosity and, and how did you get to where you are with what you've got anyway? The more we recognise actually it comes from a father's good hand rather than just our cleverness, the freer we're able to be. Because as you say then, so where's, where's the next week's... Go- where he's going to come from. Well, it's still the Father. <laughs> Should we pray together? You've been sitting a long time. Do you want to stand? And, um...
what encourages me is that um, you, you know, I can stand and say this sort of stuff and uh, I know it's heard really well and I know it's heard by people who are not sort of metaphorically shaking their heads and going over my dead body. It's kind of heard by people who go, yeah, that's, that is it. You can see it. And, and it's kind of like, so we're on the way. That's what I'm trying to say. We're on the way. It's not like, oh, this is something so very new. It's just, it's just a way where we keep reminding one another, this is what it's about, folks. This is why cups of tea matters. <laughs> this is why small talk matters. This is why um, helping one another matters. This is why, this is what it's about. This is why you sit with a person who you don't have that much in common with. This is why we want to be a church for the sake of the world, where people come, and whether they're migrants, whether they're the equivalent of slaves, whether they're the equivalent of masters, they go, ah, it's different here. We're on the way. Father God, thank you for your word that calls us back to something deeper and more radical than we would dare to imagine. May we live for you. Take our lives, our everyday lives, our waking up, going to work lives, our walking around lives. Take our talk and our willingness to listen, our interest in others. Shape it for your glory, we pray. That we might be a people for whom and amongst whom new life is found and the hope of the gospel is offered. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Rest on us. In the name of Jesus.